that. I, I loved that time that we just had to reflect on the Scripture. They were singing the Scripture to us. And so, happy Good Friday to you. I hope that by the time we're done tonight, you have reflected on what Christ did for you at the cross. We come together tonight to commemorate the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross. We call it Good Friday. And some of you might be wondering, why do we call it Good Friday if Jesus died? You might also wonder, well, in that case, what's so special about Jesus dying on the cross? Well, the good news tonight is that we can answer those questions. We'll answer the second question first, and then that will help us understand why it is good But if we're going to answer these questions, we need to know what it is that happened at the cross. What was going on regarding what we just sang about? The events surrounding the death of Jesus on the cross are known as the Passion of Christ. They refer to the time period of Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to his death on the cross. We call it his Passion because Passion means suffering. And it was during that time period that Jesus suffered the most intense, he suffered the wrath of God. He goes from the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would pray in agony, feeling the weight of what was to come, that, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. But he would conclude, not my will, but yours be done. Well, obviously, there was no other way. It had to be through what God had planned through Jesus Christ going through to the cross. And so then a mob came to arrest him. Interestingly, they come to arrest him in the cover of darkness. And he is betrayed by one of the twelve, by Judas, who would betray him with a kiss. And then they would drag him away to, I guess you could call it a trial. It was a sham of a trial. Try to be done in secret where they would falsely accuse him, where they would mock him, where they would parade him before Pilate, who would find nothing really wrong with him, no reason to kill him, but to please the Jews, to prevent any backlash, he delivers over Jesus over to be crucified. And before he makes it to that awful moment on the cross, he is flogged, he is beaten, he is flesh is ripped, his body is bruised, and yet not a single bone was broken to fulfill what the scripture had said. As we consider the passion of Christ and all that happens up to the cross and specifically at the cross, we can take a prophetic look at it as we consider what Isaiah 53 had said about this one who is the servant of the Lord, the servant of God, who would Give his life for others. Jesus is that suffering servant who rescues his people. He is the servant that's referred to in Isaiah 53. The New Testament is full of scripture that says he fulfilled what was mentioned in Isaiah 53. We'll see some of those tonight. But as we fast forward even to the early church era... In the book of Acts, in chapter 8, we have Philip, who is led by the Spirit, to approach a caravan with an Ethiopian eunuch. And he overhears that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. And he wonders, or Philip draws to him, 
and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And then we read in, in Acts 8, 34 and 35, the eunuch asks Philip regarding Isaiah 53, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. What was said in Isaiah 53 pointed directly to the good news that's found in Jesus. Now Isaiah 53, no surprise, is found in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is full of warnings of judgment that would come to the nations and to God's own people who were very rebellious. Yet within there, there is a one or many wonderful promises of one who would come, who would deliver God's people, who would restore the nation. And as we approach chapter 53, there's this building anticipation, this building excitement that there's this one who is called the arm of the Lord or more specifically, who's called the servant that would come and who would triumph, be exalted, and deliver God's people. And that brings us right up to actually the end of chapter 52, verse 13. We consider this actually part of the message of chapter 53 as well. We see that in the end of chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, that this exalted servant would also be a suffering servant. It says... Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand." This one who would be exalted must first suffer. His appearance in his sufferings would be so devastated, so marred that he would not even look human. And his disfiguration from the beatings and the torture he would endure would lead many to conclude this must not be the servant of the Lord. God wouldn't let his servant endure such a thing like that. Well, then this one can't be. But, as verse 15 says, the nations will benefit from this one. The acts he will endure will bring blessing to them. Though at first they reject him and don't understand it, eventually they will. They will see the significance of his suffering. And so while the exalted servant would suffer, we see what that suffering looks like beginning in 50, chapter 53, verses 1 and following. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
The exalted one who would suffer is also the rejected servant. He is the rejected servant. Many years ago, I had the chance to, in, in some street evangelism to talk to a young Jewish man. And I'm thinking, among many other many passages that came to my mind, I'm thinking Isaiah 53. Let me tell you about your Messiah, what he would endure, and who he is. We know who he is. Yet it was interesting as uh, we didn't get far in the conversation, and we're talking about Isaiah 53, he immediately rejected any notion that this could be talking about a specific individual who would come and bear the iniquities of his people to rescue them. So I asked, well, then who is this? Well, this is the people of Israel. Isaiah 53 is describing the sufferings of Israel and things like their Babylonian captivity and just the general attitude of the nations towards the people of Israel. Now, while I was surprised in my studies to find he's not the only one that holds to that, I think that the text is clear enough with even the pronouns that are used that this is referring to a specific individual. It refers to he, him, this one, this man, So it's not uncommon to find even people to this day rejecting the message of the Bible that points to Jesus as the suffering servant. But Isaiah begins here with verse 1 with this question, who has believed this message? As much as it's a question he's asking, it's kind of a statement as well. Who's believed it? I know one. They've rejected him. Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We see back in Isaiah 51 verse 9 that there's this idea where the prophet calls for the arm of the, the arm of the Lord to awaken. Here, it often refers to the power and strength of God Almighty. Interesting the way it's used throughout Isaiah. It points to the servant as being the arm of the Lord. The exact representation of the power and might of God. He's displayed in the person of Jesus. And this this servant, he would come to his own people. He would be raised in the environment of his people. Interestingly, though, it's a religiously dead environment, according to verse 2. But he would be raised in it and come to them, and they would not accept him. They would turn away from him. And there was no physical appearance about the servant that made them want to desire him. We know this about Jesus. He looked like an average, ordinary Jewish man. Jesus did not walk around all the time glowing with a halo over his head. He looked like a normal man. And to the people, this would make no sense. Why would he look like a normal man? He's the arm of the Lord. He is powerful. He's mighty. He wouldn't look like ordinary. He should be distinct. Then we'll be attracted to him and we'll believe him because, well... We saw how that went with King Saul. But natural man's perception of the servant was different from the truth about the servant. And the same could be said about Jesus. John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John would go on later in chapter 12 to say when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, 
Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This reminds us of the line and the song we love and know in Christ alone, where it says he is scorned by the ones he came to save. Christ came to save his people, yet they wanted nothing to do with them. And the rejection of the servant is sorrowful itself. We ourselves don't like it when people reject us. We don't like it when people don't listen to us or believe us or want anything to do with us. How much more grieving would it be that the Lord who created these people, who set these people apart, would be rejected by him or would be rejected by them, I should say. The man of sorrows knows the agony that sin brings and what it's like to be cast away by those he came to help. And that casting away would culminate in the cross. So he was the servant that must suffer. He is the rejected servant, but he is also the crushed servant. Verses 4 through 6 say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These verses are the centerpiece of the whole chapter. The servant of the Lord would be brought low, very low. He would suffer, but he wouldn't suffer for his own right standing with God. He was already right with God. His suffering was so that others would have a right standing with God. This is substitutionary language. He would do this. He would take our iniquities. I think these verses reveal very much about natural man. We are wicked from birth. We are naturally rebellious. We're like sheep who have gone astray. So much so we actually like to go astray at times. We consider what these three passages say about us here. This is what belongs to us. This is what we contribute to the table when we think about salvation. We contribute griefs, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities, rebellion, disobedience, deserving chastisement, sickness, needing healing. We go astray and we go our own way. In case you didn't notice, none of those are good. Those are all terrible. We bring nothing good to the table when it comes to our salvation. We bring the problem. This points to the case against us as being naturally good, as some want to claim. But if we're good on our own, and there isn't a problem between us and our righteous Creator, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. If I'm good enough on my own, then that's like saying Jesus wasted His time on the cross. And that's insulting to God. We do need someone to stand in the gap for us Because Ephesians 2.1 reminds us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. So we need someone who is alive that can bring us life. 
We need someone who is right with God so that we could be made right with God. There's no hope on our own. And thankfully, this servant is our mediator and our substitute. The substitute we desperately need. And this servant, who is Christ the Lord, he is the greatest expression of what serving looks like. Here's what he brings to the table. Here's what he does for us. Here's what he endures for us. He carries others' burdens. He is stricken. He is smitten. He is afflicted. He is pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, and carries others' iniquities. That's what he does for us. Well, he bring the problem and he pays for it. But more was going on in the crucifixion of Jesus than just a man being executed. There was more to the physical pain he was experiencing. The cross is not, is not just about Romans nailing a man to a couple pieces of wood. The cross is a divine drama played out. It's the accomplishment of a plan established all the way back in eternity before anything had been created. It was a plan to rescue a certain group of people for God's glory. And God accomplishes his plan. We see that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yahweh laid on the servant the iniquity of us all. This is, this is what we call the great exchange. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, faithfully loving God who provides for His people. He did this. He lays on His servant our iniquities. We recognize this language in the New Testament where it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father made the Son to be sin on our behalf, so that in the Son we might become the righteousness of God. What happens at the cross as the Lord lays on Him, the servant, our iniquity? Well, Jesus takes our sin, our sin, the crimes we have committed against our holy God, are counted to Him. Now, God didn't make Jesus a sinner because Jesus is fully God and fully man and God cannot sin. But the Father credits our transgressions to the Son as if the Son, this servant, lifted up as if He Himself had committed them. And talk about unfair. What did we get out of it? We had His righteousness before God. We get his righteousness, his right standing with God. It's in what we would say imputed to us or accredited to us who trust in Jesus. And God declares us righteous. We are now right standing with him. And we call this justification. You can imagine you were standing there holding this paper with the record of all the sins of against God you've ever committed. Although it's probably not a paper, it's probably like a big volume you'd have to bring with you. And then you've got Christ holding not a record of his sins because there are none, but a record of all his right doing, his 
faithful obedience to God's law, obedience to the Father, His righteousness. And at the cross, those papers are exchanged. But Jesus doesn't just then hold on to our volume of sins. Colossians 2 tells us that it's nailed to the cross with Him so that it is wiped away. So that the debt is canceled away and those transgressions we had committed now are no longer held against us. The servant would take on himself the agony and sickness that sin brings. Now, in so doing, the people would think that he himself is being punished by God for his own sin. However, It's not really the case. He's not suffering for his own sin, again, because he has no sin. He's suffering for the transgressions of others. As our substitute, he takes the consequences of our rebellion. And so doing, the Father crushes him. The Father pours out the penalty for sin on him. Divine wrath pierces the servant. And Jesus was the sacrifice who drank the fullness of of God's cup of wrath. At the cross, Jesus suffered for the sinful afflictions brought on by men. He faced the torment of the devil and his crew. Though the afflictions of men and the torment of the devil and his crew paled in comparison to the hardest part of the cross, the hardest part of his sufferings, and that is the wrath of the Father. It is interesting, during the last three hours of his six-hour time on the cross there was an actual darkness that fell upon the land. It was a supernatural darkness that blocked the sun. Now I encourage you to study that a little. It is fascinating. And I would recommend Dr. Greg Harris's book, The Darkness and the Glory, to dive into the depths of that darkness a little bit more. But it's been said that that darkness that fell just for those three hours was the Father Himself appearing to crush the Son, to pull out, pour out His wrath. But the Father strikes the Son with the totality of His wrath so that it would be appeased for His people. And at the end of that horrendous three hours of enduring the wrath of God, Jesus would cry out near the end. Not during it, but at the end of it. Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it was all planned, and it all was as planned. Christ's death satisfied the demands of God's holy justice against our sin, and divine wrath is turned away, and in Christ we now receive divine favor. The power of the cross is that it actually brings a complete, actual payment for sin, it secures our redemption. 1 Peter 2, 24-25 say, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the cross, your debt of sin is canceled, your guilt of sin is removed, and your redemption is actually acquired. But he's not just the 
suffering servant, the rejected servant, the crushed servant. He is the willing servant. Verses 7 through 9 say, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This one who would act wisely is the willing servant. The servant would not protest. He would not fight back. Though it's not deserved, he would willfully, the Messiah would willfully be, let himself be afflicted. And sadly, the people who think they're actually honoring God by afflicting him are committing the greatest atrocity of history. Jesus didn't fight back. He didn't argue back. Matthew 27 tells us when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He was a silent lamb that was led to the slaughter. A lamb led to the slaughter. That ought to cue in our minds Old Testament imagery of animals that were sacrificed for the covering of sin. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But there needs to be the shedding of blood because God is holy. There is no sin in Him, and yet we are not holy. And we have violated His ways, His will, His commands. We have have blasphemed His character. And so our transgressions must be dealt with. But those Old Testament animal sacrifices weren't enough. They couldn't fully atone for the sin of man. An animal is not a perfect sacrifice for a man. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, can you imagine, put yourself in history, imagine you are a faithful Israelite and you would go to the temple and sacrifice animals for your sins that you committed and to be obedient to the feast. Can you imagine, just for you, how many animals will be sacrificed in your lifetime because of your sin? The the point should jump to your mind real fast of it's never enough. There's always another sacrifice. John MacArthur, in researching this, noted that historical records of Jesus' time indicate that as many as a quarter million lambs were slain in a typical Passover season. A quarter million lambs in just a small little part of the year. It was never enough because it wasn't perfect. But there is one who is the perfect lamb. And that is the servant. That is Jesus Christ. He is the greater lamb, the sufficient sacrifice. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
He is the perfect fulfillment of all Old Old Testament sacrifices. He fulfilled the law and gave his own blood to be the payment to atone for our sins. And it was perfect. It is what 1 Peter says, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He offered himself up to be slaughtered on the behalf of others so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we would be reconciled to God. And contrary to Roman Catholicism, his sacrifice was sufficient that it only happened once. Never again. But the people would consider him to be cut off from the land of living because supposed transgressions on his part. But that's not really what was going on. He was sinless. It says there at the end, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. The Messiah is sinless. Jesus is sinless. This is a crucial doctrine. If we get rid of that and say Jesus sinned, then we lose Christianity. And the Bible is a lie. Because it says in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The sinless one endured the wrath of God for your sins, for my sins. And he did it voluntarily. He did it willingly. Jesus says in John 10:18 about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why would he lay it down? Well, three reasons pop to my mind. The first is out of obedience to the Father's will and plan. Isaiah 53:10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was pleasing to the Lord to crush him that the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. This was the Father's plan and Jesus was faithful to it. Secondly, the scriptures, he, he willingly did it so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Matthew twenty six fifty three through 54 says, Jesus says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send many more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He obeyed the Father perfectly and the scriptures are fulfilled showing that God is faithful to his word. He will do what he says. But also, why would he do it? To save his people because of his love for them. We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You translate actually the beginning of that passage, in this way God demonstrated his love. In this way, by sending the son to die. So he's the suffering servant, the rejected servant, the crushed servant, yet the willing servant. And lastly, he's the pleasing servant. It was God's will that the son would endure suffering to atone for our sins. It was God's will. He pleased the Father by following the plan perfectly. And it was the Father's plan. Acts 4, 27 through 28 give us a little insight into what happens at the cross of Jesus when it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was the divine drama on display. It pleased the Lord to rescue us. It pleased the Lord to rescue sinful man through the perfect work of His servant. The plan of God was triumphant in its purpose. Jesus even declared this from the cross when He says, It is finished. All that was required to fulfill righteousness, to be obedient to the Father and the Father's will and the law of God, and yet willingly lay His life down for us, He did it all. And His payment was accepted. That's a spoiler for Sunday. It was accepted. And so God's purpose in sending the Son to die on the cross actually accomplished what He intended. The servant's suffering and humiliation would lead to the salvation of God's people. It's a guarantee. It's not just a possibility. And in accomplishing this work, God's servant will be exalted like Isaiah 52.13 says. It is guaranteed. In fact, in case you forgot it's guaranteed, in Philippians 2, we know the section in Philippians 2 about the humility of Christ. It talks about Jesus taking the form of a servant and therefore being highly exalted by the Father for His willingness to die. So the servant who was prophesied about in Isaiah 53, he suffered And yet he triumphed. Jesus is the suffering servant who rescues his people. So let's come back to those two questions at the beginning and answer them. We'll answer them backwards. What was so special about Jesus' death on the cross? Well, at the cross, Jesus secured all that is necessary for the atonement of those who repent and trust in him. That through him alone, we can now have eternal salvation. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Okay, if that's why it's so special, then why do we call it Good Friday? Well, because God takes the most wicked act of injustice and he turns it into the greatest act for your good greatest act for your good if you've not repented and trusted in Jesus you need to do so today there's no other way if you have then let this be a day of remembering what Christ has done for you what the suffering servant who has done for you and rejoice that your God would do such a thing to save you What happens after the cross? Well, you'll have to find out Sunday. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we, we give thanks to you. For you are the eternal God who is holy and righteous and also just. And Father, we must recognize that 
We are the ones that are full of transgressions and iniquities. That we bring sin to the table. That we deserve nothing good but Your wrath. And that is all we deserve. And just the mere fact that we are not suffering in hell under Your wrath right now because of our sin is just a testimony to Your kind love and grace. But we thank You that there was a servant that was sent that Christ Jesus was sent to pay for our sins on the cross. And He actually did pay for them in full. And so we do not have to worry if our guilt will ever lead us to fall out of salvation or our stumblings, but because what Christ did, our salvation is secure. Lord, I pray that those who do not know You would repent and trust in Jesus today. They would see the goodness of Jesus who willingly laid down His life so that they would be forgiven and have everlasting life. And for those who do know You, I pray that we'd walk away being all the more thankful for the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.